No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. I may not have a vote, but I do have a voice. And tonight we're here to talk to two uh, very important people that uh, are dealing with what seems to be the number one question in America. Uh, we have with us uh, Ruth Bengay. Uh She's a historian and the recipient of Guggenheim Fulbright and other fellowships. She's an expert on fascism, authoritarianism, war propaganda, and Donald Trump. Doesn't that really say it all? She writes frequently for the media on those topics and has provided podcasts and on-camera political commentary for Sky News, Slate, Salon, uh, Democracy Now!, and Al Jazeera. Uh, We also have with us Dr. Laura Brown. Uh, Dr. Brown serves as a professor and the director of the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University, a distinguished writer and dedicated scholar. She has written op-eds and blogs for the New York Times, Washington Post, Political, The Hill, U.S. News and World Report, the Philadelphia Inquirer, one of my favorite papers, and the Huffington Post. Uh, Welcome, ladies. Uh, Thanks to both of you for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, let let me start with, uh, ask you both the same question. Uh, Should we we prosecute this man? Should Donald Trump be prosecuted? As we go through the January 6th hearing, uh, it seems that things get worse and worse and worse, and we find out more and more and more. Is it important that we prosecute him? So this is Laura Brown, and yes, I would say that it is important that he be indicted. Whether he is convicted will be determined by a jury, but I think there is enough evidence to indict on different charges, and I think it's important that it be done. And how about you, Ms. Bengay? Do you agree with that? Um, yeah, it's Ben Giat, actually. Um, oh, Ben Giat. I, I agree fully. It's ex- extremely important for to, to show that we are upholding the rule of law, and failure to prosecute uh, contributes. It will only make uh, the corruption and the violence uh, worse, uh, and it in history, when you don't prosecute, uh, their personality cults and myths about their infallibility, et cetera, all continue. So given what you just said, uh, is what if he wins? What if he wins the cases? 
aren't these, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the criminal charges would be because I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I mean, it boggles the mind when you look at the things he's done. But uh, what if it, what if he's not what if he's not found guilty of anything? Because, uh, um, you know, these things are very hard to prove, aren't they? And 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 uh, actual criminal charges. And uh, doesn't that make him more of a doesn't that add to his mystique? Doesn't that make him a bigger figure? Um, there's that risk, of course. It, it, um, uh, and, and yes, um, but I think it's um, we've had so much evidence of his uh, complicity, uh, his his guilt in inciting violence, and I think that's a risk that we we have to take because not doing anything about it, not prosecuting. Um, is is giving a pass to all of the Trump imitators who have basically the the Republican Party has basically institutionalized January 6th as its you know election subversion which is lying and corruption everybody agreeing to uh, conspire to continue a lie and the violence of January 6th all of that uh, needs to be addressed and its head it's very this was a I see January 6th as a leader cult rescue operation and he was the primary beneficiary was the primary instigator and so uh, it's very important to take that risk and uh, I mean I'll just add to that I think that's exactly right that what you are facing is what economists call moral hazard if you do not, in fact, indict, meaning that other people in the future will decide, I won't get prosecuted either, so therefore I should go ahead and do it. So you really are having to guard for the future by ensuring that the rule of law is upheld in this instance. But beyond that, I think it's important to remember that there are many individuals who have been indicted who have not been found guilty. We think of it more often in terms of, um, you know, murder cases and even celebrity murder cases. We can go back to the O.J. trial where he was never criminally found guilty of um, killing Nicole Simpson. But he then had many civil trials that came after and... um, and his wrongdoing was essentially societally determined through his many financial um, obligations. Well, you know the thing. I think that the thing that uh, the big question for me is: Does this move the country in the right direction? As far as a deterrent goes, I think that if Donald Trump knew that he could get prosecuted and sent to jail for all these things, he would have done them anyway. I, I don't see it as, as as a potential deterrent. I think that, you know, politics for in America has 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 been, you know, dirty, for lack of a better word, unfortunately, uh, for for hundreds of years. You know, we had Andrew Jackson said his only regret when he left office was he didn't get to shoot Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House, or hang his vice president, uh, John Calhoun. Uh, I think, I, I, I don't see this as a deterrent. Do you really think it would be a deterrent to future uh, presidents? Well, 
I do. I think it's, in fact, incredibly important. I mean, part of why we are where we are is likely because um, Richard Nixon was granted a pardon. I mean, he was not held criminally accountable for any of the crimes with respect to Watergate. And I do think that as somebody who studied scandal, um, that there is this problem where the more that individuals are perceived to get away with things, the more future politicians will have uh, really transgressive designs. It's also the case, and I think it's important to remember, that this wouldn't be so wildly unprecedented. I mean, it's certainly unprecedented uh, in terms of indicting a former president, but we have actually a case with some of the most important presidents in our history. Um, Thomas Jefferson charged Aaron Burr, his former vice president, with treason. There was a treason trial in 1807, and it was found that there wasn't enough evidence and Burr was let off. But that trial itself was incredibly important and did set the standard for what we understand treason to be today. But isn't yeah. it all... I'm sorry, go ahead, Ruth. Go ahead, please. No, I, I, I agree with that. The other thing is, and I want to be really clear and blunt here, <laughs> that I... I I was able uh, to predict uh, that I wrote an uh, op-ed for CNN before Trump took office saying that he, would, he was going to govern with the authoritarian playbook. And he was unlike any president before, Republican or Democrat, because he, was, he, was an, he had an autocratic model of leadership. He also had a, an incredible record of... Um, you know, association with criminal, uh, with criminality. And in fact, he was uh, under investigation, just like Putin and Berlusconi in Italy. He was under investigation when he ran for office. And this kind of, of leader, and my book, Strongman, unfortunately for us, uh, he's, he's in it, and he has the same personality and the same methods as many of these uh, other leaders, different outcome today. We don't have, you know, fascist dictatorships, one-party states, uh, as commonly. But um, they they have no respect for the rule of law, and their his, and for example, his business model was all about finding the gray zone between the legal and the illegal. And there's never been anyone in the White House with the scope of different kinds of criminality as Trump. So I'm saying all this because whether it's uh, there's precedent or not is important, and it's very important what Lara said about Nixon. But his whole, we will see in the future, his whole presidency is a kind of state of exception because there's never been anyone like Trump in office. Well, you don't have to convince, convince me of <laughs> any of that, believe me. But let me just ask you uh, again, Dr. Brown, isn't it a matter of politics and not the law for example, the, 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 the example you bring up with Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, you could also look at the impeachment of um, uh, Andrew Johnson, right, who was impeached on a minor. He, he violated the Tenure of, of Office Act by uh, firing a postal employee, is, you know, which is a pretty minor offense, but he was impeached on the basis of that. Isn't it really... Doesn't this all come down to politics and really not law? Well, no, actually. Impeachment 
is a political charge. It is a charge that is levied by the House of Representatives. There is a political trial that is then held in the Senate, and it was determined um, in every case of impeachment thus far for a president uh, not to convict. But that is separate from a crime, and a crime um, is something that needs to be indicted and at least uh, moved forward with prosecution because of what Ruth said. Um, you know, the rule of law is vitally important. If you start to make exceptions for those who are engaging in election activity, um, then really at what point does the democracy completely unspool? Because what we have here, and we should be clear about the kinds of charges that President Trump would likely face, it would be conspiracy to defraud the United States and also um, the sort of willful obstruction of an official proceeding. And I think those two things are incredibly important. Um, we know that many people in many states have, in fact, been found guilty of a felony for casting two ballots in an election. That is um, a much lesser crime than I think what we have seen um, really that is building around President Trump. We know that Fonnie Willis down in Georgia is looking at how the president actually pressured um, Secretary of State Raffensperger to find him over 11,000 votes. That's much different than just casting two ballots. Um, isn't that a really important point, though, that the system held, that you had people like Raffensperger who were Republicans, who were Trump supporters, in fact, in many cases, and they stood up and did the right thing. You know, Mike Pence yeah. stood up and did the right thing. Raffenberger stood up and did the right thing. The guy in Pennsylvania, they all stood up and did the right thing because they, they thought that, that, that the country was more important than Trump. Uh, unfortunately, he doesn't share that opinion. But, don't, you know, is, is, didn't the system hold? It, it held. It held in, in amazing ways, and we should add that the military refused to go along with, yeah. you know, because they were, they were trying to have schemes for martial law, et cetera. And so the institutions held, but the, what has happened is that January 6th sent the Republican Party into what I call emergency mode and hugely further radicalized the party. So all of the tendencies that were already... Um, to already going on to protect Trump. For example, one of the reasons he wasn't impeached the second time is he had he had put the the GOP under a kind of authoritarian style discipline, so you weren't allowed to have any internal dissent. And people, Republicans who voted uh, in February 2021 to impeach him had to buy body armor because they were threatened. And then this then became, uh, you know, look what happened to Mike Pence. Who, who Trump thought it was okay to hang him. This is the stuff of political thrillers. And a third of my book's on coups. So unfortunately, everything that happened and all the things we're learning uh, about uh, the Secret Service, all this is very typical uh, in, in coup behavior. Um, but, you, you know, this, it's, it's, very, it's very, very important to, to have that frame in order to understand 
that as soon as January 6th happened, they, they've been methodically going after uh, the, that system. It's called autocratic capture. When you go after election judges, election workers, and you try and take control of the system, and they studied very carefully what didn't work last time for them. All the, all the loopholes, all the people, the areas that didn't do what they needed them to do. And they're taking steps, uh, as we know, to, um, to make sure that never happens again. So the system next time uh, wouldn't hold as easily. Yeah, that, that is a very scary thing, and that's exactly what they're doing. Uh, let me ask you, Ruth, since you're a, a, an authority on fascism, authoritarianism, propaganda, is there an, do we have an environment? Because I care about what this does to the nation. Is, is this, did we provide an environment for Trump to succeed? I mean, is, is, is America, are we all responsible for getting this man elected because there's an environment in the country now that, that, that allows this to happen? That's such an interesting question. And, you know, when, when there's support for these strongman-like figures, it's like a meeting of personality and circumstance. And Trump uh, is a superb propagandist and marketer, and he, as we know, he wanted to run for president before, and he saw that the time was right in 2016. And uh, what my research for my book shows is that when it, the time that these kinds of people appeal is when a society's gone through a lot of change, uh, could be workers' rights, could be gender equity, racial emancipation, that leave a lot of people feeling their status is threatened. And we, we had just gone through that with uh, Barack Obama, legalized same-sex marriage, women admitted to combat, all the things we know. And Trump realized there was this uh, moment that he could exploit. And what he did, and I, I was interviewed twice by the January 6th committee about this and other things, he systematically cultivated extremists, malcontents, he, he used emotional language, and he created this big tent environment so that all the uh, different kinds of extremists and racists could feel valued by him. Unfortunately, that's what the fascists did, too. When you have this charismatic leader and you have this certain kind of moment in history, and there's like an alchemy that happens and a movement is born, and that's and there were, of course, the Tea Party. There were things that prepared the Republican Party and... Republicans in general for this, but you need to have that spark of the charismatic leader who knows how to coalesce everybody and give it a focus. That's why the leader is so important, and it's been very important in the January 6th hearings. Senator, let me maybe just jump in here, too, and and try to answer your question from a process side. Because I'm a political scientist. I've written a book about presidential elections and presidential candidates from 1796 through 2008. And then I just wrote a book about presidential leadership and, and how our, our visions of what we believe presidents should be has changed. And I will tell you that the one thing that I think is really important um, is that John Aldrich, who is a professor at Duke, uh, he has a quote that I love that I think is so important. He says, yes, it's true that anyone can grow up to be president of the United States, 
so long as they grow up to be one of the two major political parties' nominees. And that is really about how did Trump get there. It's so important to realize that Trump got there because in 2016, there was a very large field. Many Republicans wanted to join in. He put his hat in the ring. He very quickly, because of his celebrity, became the best known of the field. And then with that sort of higher poll standing in the sort of low 30s among Republicans, he was able to dominate primary elections. And those primary elections on the Republican side at the time were mostly winner-take-all affairs. So what that meant was he very quickly became the front runner and the leading candidate with the most delegates also because the process on the Republican side pushed him toward the nomination much faster than, say, had he run as a Democrat. In fact, there's been an analysis and political science that shows that had Trump actually run as a Democrat, he probably would have lost because Democrats use proportional representation. And had um, Hillary Clinton um, run as a Republican because they use winner-take-all, she would have had no problem wrapping up her nomination against Bernie Sanders. So some of this, too, is also process-induced. I don't deny at all what, what Ruth is saying about our culture and what we were looking for and the moment that his candidacy was right. But we also have to understand how structures um, help to create outcomes in politics. Yeah, and let me just make one comment about what Ruth said. I don't know why you get this, Ruth, and the Democratic Party doesn't. I mean, for years, <laughs> I've felt, you know, as a Democrat, that we really don't understand how change has affected so many people in this country, has affected their attitudes. And uh, I think we just take it for granted, especially living in Washington, D.C., that everybody thinks the same way that, uh, that we think. Uh, my big question, I guess, is if we prosecute him, won't he be able to put this off indefinitely? I mean, he's, you know, suing. Th th this is what this man likes to do. He's got a ton of lawyers, right? So he's going to delay and drag his feet and appeal. Look, we just see Steve Bannon, who was just convicted on two very minor charges, which hold 30-day uh, sentence in jail and a, a, a small fine, and he's appealing. And the reason I think he's appealing is because he wants to keep it going. And and won't this won't Trump just be out there for years uh, delaying this and dragging his feet and appealing it? And doesn't that keep him on the front page? Well, he's on the front page anyway, and it doesn't take away the moral obligation and political urgency of pursuing a prosecution because this is he's he's done this. His father, Fred, taught him to do this. This is their yeah. business model. Yeah. Um, he, he and Berlusconi and, and Erdogan in Turkey are, are mass sewers. They have, been, uh, plaintiff, they have been in 
thousands and thousands of lawsuits, and they have their own Wikipedia page, their legal issues. They're so, they're so copious. So um, I think it's not, a, it's not a reason not to do it. It's just a foregone conclusion he's going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I almost felt sorry for the guy. 40 lawsuits and he didn't win one. He just, uh, what about the idea of prosecuting all the people around him that facilitated him? The Sidney Powells and the Steve Bannons and the, uh, you know, Rudolph Giuliani's. Doesn't that really send the, 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 the same message since in a democracy, no one person can do what Trump tried to do? You need complicity. Don't you think that would, that, that, that would say the same kind of message? And I, I'd like both of you to respond to that. Well, I mean, I think if you're talking about all of his sort of underlings who helped further this um, conspiracy from, you know, John Eastman to Rudy Giuliani to potentially Steve Bannon and Roger Stone, certainly. But I think they are just going to be part of the process. In other words, they would probably have to be prosecuted before the Justice Department department was going to to actually uh, look to indict Trump, because what they would want to do is do what they do in most of these kinds of cases, which is uh, make sure that those who aided and abetted um, in the crime, all of that knowledge is known and potentially those individuals are able to flip. And so you're right that this could take uh, a very long time. But I think that even when we look at Watergate, we know um, that it was almost, you know, two years before even some of the top aides were indicted. Mm-hmm. It, it is the reality of the justice system, but it doesn't mean that it shouldn't happen. Yeah, that, that's very useful, what Lara said, to remind us that it was two years and not only we're in like you know insta insta mode uh, the way our brains work the social media uh, we don't have as much you know patience but it's also that's how democratic justice uh, works and there's a reason that Trump you know uh, met with the Chinese head of state and said oh I admire you you can just like execute someone whenever you want you know <laughs> they don't have to do any yeah. of this this we would never be having hearings in uh, in in most many states around the world, they would never be possible these hearings. So, and about you know, you, you have to the enablers are very important. But in a in a system dominated by somebody with a strong personality cult, all those people had um, a place in the conspiracy. Their, their place in the conspiracy only made sense because of Trump, and the big lie was an entirely self-serving. Um, Propaganda, it's, it's going to be looked upon as one of the most successful propaganda campaigns in history. Uh, and it benefited primarily who? Trump. <laughs> because he, he, leaders like him cannot leave office because they're, fe- they're afraid of not being adored anymore. They're afraid of losing immunity from prosecution, all kinds of things. And they never, ever go quietly. And the big lie allowed him to keep grifting from people you know, with his non-existent election defense fund. It also allowed his personality cult to remain intact, which is very important for his followers. 
uh, because it, it allowed them not to have to reckon with the fact he was a loser. And personality cults are extremely uh, psychologically powerful. Um, and, and so it did a lot of things, a big lie, but it was all about him. So it would make no sense to, you have to prosecute those around him, but, but you also have to prosecute the, the head. It's like when you go after, uh, you know, terrorists or something, you, you, have, to, you have to get at the head of the, the cell. Um, this is the same principle. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense, um, and the danger remains. Well, let's talk about his cell for a minute. And that is that, you know, you have these Trump people. I, I've got to tell you, my mother was a Republican committee woman, and she wouldn't have voted. As soon as he said what he said to Billy Bush about what he does to women, my mother wouldn't have voted for him uh, if God came down and told her to vote for him. But there's plenty of people that that just dismiss all his bad behavior. And that, that, you know, he has this core group, right, of fanatics who who uh, will believe him when he says this is just another witch hunt. You know, Democrats have been after me since the day I came into office, which is which is true, actually. But we had good reason to be after him. And uh, uh, so there's two things that 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 I think are going on here. And I wonder what you think about him. First of all, I think if he goes for the nomination, what the January 6th committee has done is they've effectively emboldened other Republicans to run against him. And if he goes for the nomination, don't you think that'll tear the Republican Party apart at this point? I mean, don't, won't the Trump people and the people that are trying to succeed Trump just, just tear each other apart? Well, unfortunately, that was how Trump was nominated the first time. Mm. is that there were so many people who jumped into the Republican nomination, and each one of them believed that if they could just get to where it was them and Trump, they could best Trump. Ted Cruz was the one who came the closest, but you could see that he was far behind by the time that winnowing process happened. So, in fact, a, a... nomination structure where there are a lot of candidates who actually are going after Trump may, in fact, help him to survive. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, Ted Cruz had his moment in the sun in Iowa, (laughs) and that was about that was about it. But uh, um, yeah, I you know, and that's the worry I have that that. You know, because even as a Democrat, look, I've been a Democrat my whole life. I, I bleed Democratic blue. I was a teamster. I was, you know, I was born to be a Democrat. But I understand that we need a healthy Republican Party uh, in America as well as a healthy Democratic Party. So, so uh, you know, that worries me a little bit. And let me say, before we go any further, that recent polls show that 60% of America agrees with both of you. Ladies, they believe that he should be prosecuted. Uh, what do you think? How important do you think that is? That you have a majority of the population that 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 stands with you uh, on this issue that that he should be prosecuted. I think I think it's very important. That doesn't matter at all to the Republicans because, as we know, many of their policies are way out of whack with uh, you know what what Americans' desires are. 
and, and they, they don't care. To, I wanted to address the, the previous thing for a second. What, yeah. One of the issues you see with somebody like Trump who's so dominating and actually gives one of the main things he did, which was very liberating to many uh, Republicans, he gave people permission to be lawless. He allowed them to um, to go where they had never thought they could go before, uh, to drop their professional ethics, to um, you know not have to behave according to inconvenient norms of professionalism and, and ethics. All of that went out the window, and you were rewarded for that. And if you look at and so the the system um, spawns these. Uh, it not only changes people. Uh, and, uh, and, and makes them their worst selves. And that's what Trump wants. Everybody has to be their worst self around him, like Bill Barr and all these other enablers. Um, but it spawns imitators. And I'm very worried about Ron DeSantis. I've written about five op-eds about him already because he has absorbed the lessons of Trump. And he's also a case study of how, in order to get ahead with the Republican Party, uh, you have to now embrace you know, the lying, the corruption. And so here's somebody who used to be a Reagan conservative. And on, you know, November 2020, he was very proud that Florida didn't have any fraud. And now he's got this, like, you know, uh, big brother kind of office of, quote, election security um, and, and has become a very, uh, a very far-right extremist figure. So the whole party, when you say the country needs a healthy Republican Party, in a bipartisan system, yes, it does, but the Republican Party has become, I really see it as, trans, it is in the middle of a transformation into an extremist entity, which is very scary. Um, and the kinds of behaviors and morals that are rewarded now are, are, have nothing to do with conservatism. Um. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add to that. I, I think Ruth is completely right that the the Republican Party has lost its way because it has so often bowed to um, former President Trump. And I think we can even see this lawlessness that Ruth mentions in in something that is somewhat minor, but not really. Um, you know, look, I served in President Clinton's administration, and I remember when I was an appointee, it was absolutely prohibited to do anything that was slightly political while you were in your appointment, right? That was a violation of what's called yeah. the Hatch Act. The Hatch Act, yeah. The Hatch Act became regularly violated, so much so that we had the Republican, you know, convention essentially um, in the White House. I mean, there was such um, a return to this idea of parties running the official government, um, which really we had left behind in the 1800s with all of the original progressive reforms that erected the, the civil service. Yeah, it, I got to tell you, it amazed me. I was invited to the Republican convention. I've been to the past uh, 11 nominating conventions of the Democratic Party, but I was invited to the Republican convention and, uh, in Cleveland, uh, the first one, and it was amazing 
that the governor wouldn't come out and tell people they couldn't carry guns, and they all showed up with guns, and the police were the police were hysterical. You know, the last thing they wanted was all these, uh, you know, kind of bubbas walking around in the in, in the crowd with guns on. You know, it made it made security. Uh, uh, I've never seen so many cops in all my life, and they were they were all on edge about this. And you, you know, it doesn't seem like anybody has the guts to stand up to this guy. But, you know, that's an old saying in, in, in politics that Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. Let me ask you a question now. Now, I don't know how, how much of a, you know, what impact this can have. But under the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment says no person shall be a senator or representative of Congress or elector or president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislator or an executive, blah, 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 uh, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid and comfort to enemies thereof, but Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such persons. Can we keep him from running again, you think? Can can Congress do something? Can we impeach him in absentia or uh, or, or or under the Fourteenth Amendment uh, if 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 he's if he's convicted of insurrection, can we keep him from running again? Well, certainly, um, I am not a sort of congressional legal expert at this level. But what is true is that uh, you know Congress can create some sort of of censure um, resolution and and engage in that. I mean, there is. No reason why that couldn't be done. That was one of the things that was discussed about the original, um, you know, or I should say his second impeachment hearing uh, that was related to his incitement um, of the rioters on January 6th. So I, I don't see any reason why they couldn't prevent him from running again. But I think it's also true that what is more important than what Congress does is going to be what the Republican Party chooses to do um, and how they look to embrace him or not. And at the moment, it appears as though the Republican Party has said that they would be essentially neutral in this process. And that may pose problems um, for the future. Well, don't you think... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bruce. Go ahead. Oh, I, I I also don't have the expertise, but it's a very, Senator, you raise a really interesting question. But what, as somebody who looks at extremism, what I am, one of the things I'm very worried about is how many GOP sitting lawmakers are um, talking uh, so often about the right to insurrection. In fact, the whole um, discourse Matt Gates and all of these people make about guns is and it has again it has to be mimicked if you want to have a future in the Republican Party. So you know, Dr. Oz did it too. That you know, the Second Amendment is not about hunting, recreation. It's about the right to rebel, uh, to have an insurrection against a tyrannical government. And this is one of the party lines now. And so 
they're actually not only they in, in in the general they don't care about being tagged as insurrectionists. They're actually constantly talking about the right to insurrection. That doesn't change the Fourteenth Amendment, but it's it's a cultural political uh, it, the, the political culture of the Republicans has shifted so radically that all of a sudden that's an okay thing to say, and they all say it. Well, you know, that to me is the more important uh, uh, point here, what, what you just made, that, it, you know, it's how it's what the culture and what the parties, you know, how they're going to proceed. And, yeah, it's just amazing to me that they can do that, given that the first three words of the uh, first four words of the Second Amendment are a well-regulated militia. But, you know, they think they think instead of supporting the government that, you know, which was the idea of, of the Second Amendment, it's to protect themselves from the government. It's, it's just amazing. But what can we do? Well, you know, Senator, can I just yeah. jump in with one other yeah, thing that please. I think is important, especially because most Democrats um, are are loath to admit this. But one of the reasons why our system held is actually because of the complicated nature of the Electoral College. I know the Democrats don't like that, but they do and should ask themselves what would have happened if there was a national popular vote where all votes were aggregated and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo got to determine whether or not that vote was valid. I think it's important to recognize that the framers, and in Federalist 68, Alexander Hamilton argues that nothing was more to be desired than that they essentially create every obstacle that was practical that would oppose, quote, cabal, intrigue, and corruption. So one of the things that actually helped um, in this situation is that it is very difficult to rig a presidential election. You have to engage multiple states. You've got to get fake electors. You've got to do all sorts of things and involve a whole bunch of people. And by the very fact that you're doing that, you're actually creating a conspiracy that is almost inevitably going to be found out. And that's where we are today. So I do think... As, as many problems as the Electoral College have, we should acknowledge that it was part of having to rely on election officials in Arizona and in Georgia and in Pennsylvania and in Wisconsin um, that actually protected the overall vote on Election Day. Well, I think that's a very important point. And, you know, the idea that we get rid of the Electoral College is certainly, in my humble opinion, uh, a knee-jerk reaction. You know, it just seems more democratic to get rid of it. But I think you're absolutely right. And so I asked you, right when the election was over, I was asked to speak to a bunch of people. And I had a woman stand up in the audience and say, as liberal Democrats, we have nothing to apologize for. And I said, of course we do. This man got elected because we, you know, if we had put up a candidate and supported her and done what we were supposed to do, he wouldn't have gotten elected. So what can, if, if that's true, what can we do as Democrats, do you think? What can we do as Democrats? I think the most important thing that Democrats uh, should focus on is 
they need to take a look at the rules and the procedures. And I do think that Democrats fail uh, to notice how many places in the system they have to either overcome with strategy or with dedicated activity. And I tend to think that when I look back, so much is this idea of, well, the majority believes it. Well, even if that's true, even if the majority believes it, and even if 48% of the people voted for Hillary Clinton, that didn't necessarily mean that she was going to win. And this is where looking at how the, the procedures work, I just think is so vitally important because popularity isn't the whole story. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I was a staffer at the DNC for many years, and uh, we started to do a, a half-hearted effort when I was there to look at some of these things, and we never followed through on it, where the Republicans have always been good at it. And, they're, you know, as you've already pointed out, they're already working on it today. They're working at ways to put in their own electors and, and do other ridiculous things like that. Uh, so, Ruth, uh, again, what do you think we could do? What can we do as Democrats? Is there anything we can do about the environment that that we're in right now? Because that's what really bothers me is that this is somehow going to be more divisive for the country. I think... I think it's really important uh, to reach out to uh, undecided voters, to non-voters, to um, even Republicans in your family, um, in your circles, uh, and 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 try and kind of build bridges and talk to them. Uh, and again, go back to the the poll you cited that you know 60% of Americans uh, believe that you know there's grounds for prosecuting Trump. And also, I think it's really important, uh, I've started giving talks to business associations that to let people know, and this is an unfortunate, you know, knowledge I have of how um, authoritarian uh, governments kind of ruin society. There's this myth that it's good for business, it's stable, it's law and order, and it's quite the opposite. And just as gun violence costs you know, over $200 billion a year, that's not good for anybody. So talk about outcomes. Um, civil strife and, and this low level and uh, violence and threat that so many have, like right now, um, I, have a, I publish a political newsletter called Lucid, and my latest one is about how librarians are being attacked. You know, they're, they're getting at the kind of fabric of civil society, teachers, librarians, and none of this is, is good for business. It's not good for, for social fabric. And I think people need, we need to, we need to educate others and try and get them to vote. Uh, I'm always shocked by how many people didn't vote in the last elections. Yeah. And if you were ever, this is, this is do or die. And it, it's really, it's hard to mobilize people, um, to, because they take democracy for granted. And even yep. though rights are being rolled back and it's going on in front of everyone's eyes, um, I think many people don't follow politics, and they think it's not going to affect them. So that's something that I think it's very important to do, is mobilize as many voters and get new people to vote. And let me just also say and emphasize what Ruth is saying, because I think something is so important here that gets lost. 
policy debates between Republicans and Democrats, that happens with inside a democratic system. What we are actually mm. facing right now is a, a, a Republican authoritarian wing that is interested in changing the nature of the system entirely. And that is very different. We have actually in the United States never had that. When you think about our civil war, when you think about the nullification crisis, when you think about other moments, even Aaron Burr being charged with treason, all of those were about separatist movements. They were all about people trying to leave the union. What is so wild about the moment we are in is that there is actually a group of individuals who would like to overthrow the union and the government and install a different government. That is quite different, and, it's, and it has nothing to do with what we have always known as sort of Republican versus Democratic debate. That, that's, yeah, such, that's such so important. And in fact, when the watershed was the 2016 election, which I watched in horror, given my background, because yeah. um, Hillary Clinton was became a political enemy. And what do you do if you're authoritarian with your opponent, with your political enemy? You lock them up. This was new. <laughs> so that the whole culture yeah. of Republican, in fact, that's why they're not doing debates anymore because they, they, they don't want to debate. That's, the whole political culture is being shifted in ways that prepare for some kind of auto, autocratic rule and differences of opinion, even within the party. I keep stressing that's very important, that within the party there can't be any debate either. That's authoritarian. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when we see this in other places of the world, too. We see this in India, for example, the world's largest democracy with this guy Modi, who's not not very different from Trump or in Brazil with that nut or Venezuela. We see uh, we see these movements happening all over the world. And again, I think, you know, uh, Ruth, I would I could spend a whole hour just talking to you about environment. But uh, we're starting to run out of time here. So let me do a couple of important things. I want you both to tell people how they can reach out, how they can get your books, how they can reach you online, how they can see what you have to say. Ruth, do you want to go first? How Do you have a website? or? or uh... Sure. Um, yeah, my website uh, is www.ruthbengiat.com. And uh, I'm also on Twitter, uh, and uh, there in my bio, you can find a link to read my, to subscribe to my newsletter called Lucid, which is free to subscribe. And it's all, I write all about these things, U.S. and global. And uh, that's, those are probably the best ways to find my, find my work. And you, Dr. Brown? So you can find me via my personal website, which is just Lara, L-A-R-A, M. Brown, phd.com and you can also find me on Twitter and on LinkedIn um, I'm happy to, to engage in conversation and talk about the importance of this moment for our republic 
Yeah, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you both being on the show because I think this is so important. And I think that uh, we we are in a place that we've never been before. And, and, and it's scary. And when you talk about voter participation, you know, in the nation's capital where where politics is really our business, less than 50 percent of the people vote. So uh, it's ridiculous. What, what do you ladies just quickly uh, think about paying people to vote? They do it in Australia and they have like 90 some percent of participation. So I'll just jump in and say that actually I think the right not to vote is important in our democracy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that I would encourage it or that I believe in it, but I think that there is something uniquely Americanly, uh, sort of American and democratic about the choice to disengage. Um, I also would say that, that one of the things that I think people don't realize, they, they tend to believe that if there's a larger turnout, it favors Democrats. That's not necessarily true. The larger the turnout, the sort of more unpredictable the election. So um, the reason why people should vote is because I think our election should be, to a certain extent, unpredictable. Um, but it is a civic duty, and I think it's something important, but I am not in favor of requiring it um, by any means. I, I think Laura's answer was great, so I, I don't have anything to add. I agree with all of that. Okay. Uh, we're almost out of time here, ladies. Is there anything you want to add? Is there something that I didn't ask you that, that you think is important to add? Oh, I, I think, think the district covered. should have two senators. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. So that that's wonderful and i love you for saying that and by the way miss bengat my wife's a librarian so she's going to love you for pointing out that, that librarians are under attack these days as well um thank you ladies for being on the show i really appreciate this i think this is so important to our democracy uh you know there's a chinese curse which is may you live uh in interesting times and i think that we're we're finding out that we're in interesting times. So thank you so much for being on the show. Folks, we'll see you next week. We always leave with a with a song. Here's one from uh Warren Yvonne, uh Lawyers, Guns and Money. Thanks so much. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote.